Thank you, worship team. As you're being seated, I want to say welcome to Ignite. Really glad you could be here with us this morning. Uh, We're going to continue our Gospel of Matthew series. We're taking a few years to work through the book, verse by verse, section by section. Uh, Next week, God willing, we will be halfway through our study in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, It's getting good. Spoiler alert, Jesus dies and rises again. Uh, That's what we're looking forward to. That's what we're working our way toward. Um, Before we get into Matthew 14 today, I want to highlight God's faithfulness to our church. Um, Christ said in Matthew 16 that he will build his church. Gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And Ignite Church is um, a tremendous testament to that. Two weeks ago, we celebrated baptisms as a church that is four people uh, declared publicly that they are dead to sin and alive in Christ. That's exciting. We celebrate that as a church. Uh, Last week, we celebrated communion. We reaffirmed our love for one another through communion as the body of Christ. We reflected on Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Um, Also last week, we saw our largest uh, worship service attendance numbers in over a year. Um, And so that's kind of frightening as a logistics guy, but also very encouraging because a lot of new faces, a lot of new people uh, coming to Ignite and hearing the gospel preached and uh, seeing Christ hopefully among us. Um, And so if that's you, if you're new here, maybe you joined us uh, at some point within the last year, I want to say welcome. Really glad you're here with us. And uh, I pray that whether you're new here or whether you call Ignite Church your home and have for a long time, I pray that today you will encounter God through his word and that you'll leave here looking more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the hope of the Christian. So if you have a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 22. Uh, This week, we look at a familiar story in the life of Jesus. And if you have a Sunday school background, you've unquestionably heard this story. Maybe if we're going way back, you had a felt board and you illustrated this story uh, with your beloved Sunday school teacher. Or maybe you're new to the Bible, and if so, um, I'd still be willing to bet that you're, you're familiar with this story. It's a well-known story, and for good reason. And so in your Bibles, the heading probably says, Jesus walks on the water. And this is true. That's what we're looking at today. He does this. We have in this narrative some of the most epic events in the Gospel of Matthew. Okay, Jesus sends his disciples into a violent storm. He appears as some type of ghost walking on the water. Peter steps out of the boat and he walks on water. It's an eventful night. But I do think a better title for this account is this, the disciples worship Jesus. And I think you'll see why in a moment. Read with me, Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 22. Says this, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. 
But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And verse 33, significant. Here's what I think is the main point of this narrative. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. This last verse, verse 33, is not only the climax of this story, but it's also the high point, one of the high points in Matthew's gospel. We have in verse 33 the first recorded confession of Jesus' disciples confessing that he is the Son of God. So I want to ask this, what got the disciples to this point? What brought these 12 ordinary men to worship the God-man, Jesus Christ, as God? That's the lens through which we're going to look at this narrative today, and I think that's why Matthew included this account in his gospel. For the aim of getting all people, without exception, without distinction, to confess that Jesus is truly the Son of God and worship him. And so here's a central theme that we're going to see emerge often throughout this passage as we work through it. If you're a note taker, perhaps you want to write this down, but it is this, worship is the only proper response to God's power. Worship is the only proper response to God's power. Worship comes from a word, two words, worth and ship. It is to ascribe worth to something or someone. It is through worship that we say, you are worthy of value. You're worthy of my life. You're worthy of my realignment of my priorities. When we worship Jesus, we confess with our mouths and show with our lives that Jesus is king, that Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. So what brought the disciples to this place? Worship is the only proper response to God's power. And this narrative has three major movements that culminate in this wonderful confession of verse 33. And so look with me at the text. We see the first movement in this narrative as preparation, Christ preparing the disciples' hearts for the confession of faith. In verse 22, we pick up where we left off last week with the feeding of the 5,000. This was Jesus' quantitatively greatest miracle, meaning there were 5,000 men present at this uh, feeding of the 5,000, but that was besides women and children. And so it's safe to estimate that there were roughly 12 to 15,000 people being fed by Jesus as the food was being distributed through his disciples. 
And John's gospel notes that this scene was absolutely chaotic. In John chapter 6, a parallel account of Jesus feeding the 5,000, we see that after Jesus had fed them miraculously, that the crowds went into an uproar. And Jesus perceived that they wanted to make him king. And so we had to get away and pray. He, he had to dismiss the crowds and say, my time has not yet come. And let me say this. Look, Jesus giving free health care, Jesus giving free food, I'd want to make him king too. We can't blame the crowds for this. They say, surely this is the Messiah. And we want him to be with us always. And so he dismisses the crowds. We see him send the disciples to the other side. This was the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They sent them, uh, Jesus sent them across to the land of Gennesaret. This was a Gentile that is a non-Jewish region. Good Jews didn't go over here. So Jesus goes to, sends his disciples to Gennesaret, and what does Jesus do at this moment, he prays? He goes away by himself to pray. And Jesus would often do this. He, he would often pray seeking communion relationship with his father. And you got to think about this with me because Jesus sought nothing more than to be in relationship with and commune with his father in prayer. Jesus, at the moment of the incarnation, when he took on human flesh and walked among us, had existed eternally as God perfect relationship and communion with the Father as God. And Jesus humiliates himself by becoming a man, taking on human flesh, taking on the limitations of human nature and entering into our sin and our suffering and our brokenness. He desired nothing more than to commune with his Father as he had before the ages began. And so he would pray. We don't know what he prayed about in this moment. It's possible that he prayed for humility in his human nature. Because when thousands of people are chanting your name, saying, make him king, crown him as the new Moses, you need humility, don't you? Or perhaps he's praying for strength, as he's going to follow his disciples over to the land of Gennesaret for another leg of the Gentile mission. Maybe he's praying for resolve because Jesus' identity and mission is coming into clearer focus at this point in his ministry. His face is beginning to be set toward Jerusalem where he would eventually suffer under the hand of Pontius Pilate, die a sinner's death though he knew no sin, in the place of his people. But nonetheless, Jesus prayed. And it picks up in verse 24 that while Jesus is alone, secluded, praying, verse 24 says, the boat by this time was a long way from the land. It was beaten by the waves. The wind was against them. 
Okay, Jesus sent his disciples into a violent storm. And this raises a question. Did Jesus know about this storm? Or Jesus, prior to sending his disciples across, did he know about this storm? We'd say yes. Of course he did. For Jesus is God. Jesus knows the hairs on your head. Jesus declares the end from the beginning. Jesus perceives the thoughts in the hearts of man. And so if Jesus sent them knowingly into this storm, then why did he do it? And I'll give you what I think is the biblical response, though it's not the the easy one to grasp, but it calls for our attention. God loves to put his people in difficult situations so that he can show the fullness of his strength and glory. God loves to put his people in difficult situations so that he can show the fullness of who he is. Think about Moses, the second book of your Bible, the book of Exodus. God appears to him and calls him as a prophet and as a leader for his people Israel. At this time in biblical history, God's people were slaves, oppressed in the great empire of Egypt, a great national power. God appoints Moses to lead them out of slavery and into the land of promise that he appointed for them. And so victoriously, triumphantly, Moses leads hundreds of thousands of Israelites out of Egypt, through the desert, and where do they end up? standing before the great Red Sea. Difficult situation, isn't it? But in that moment, God says, Moses, I will fight for you. You need only be still. And miraculously, God separates the waters. Israel, for hours and hours, walked on dry land, escaping Pharaoh and his armies who were behind them. And they make it to the other side. God shows off his glory and his strength through a really difficult situation. This is what God does with his people. Or think about the book of Job. It's a really big book toward the middle of your Bible. Slightly intimidating in its length. But Job loses everything. He loses his children, his wealth, his home. His wife turns on him and says, just curse God and die. He has nothing. And so he wrestles with God's sovereignty and his goodness and his greatness. God puts him in this difficult situation Job says, God, though you slay me, yet I will praise you. And God does this only so that Job can come out on the other side and say what? Communion with a great and good God is sufficient. I use these examples to 
say, look, God puts his people in difficult situations to show his strength and his glory. He's always done this. He continues to do this. And this is exactly what he does with the apostles. Jesus, knowing full well what is to happen, sends them into the storm, commands them to go to the other side. So he prepares them through trial. We see the second major movement. This is where it gets good. Verses 25 through 27, we see revelation. Jesus' revelation of himself to his disciples. Look with me at verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night that is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. I want to draw your attention to this phrase. It appears twice, once in verse 25, once in verse 26. And it is Jesus came to them walking on the sea. Every word in Scripture is inspired, breathed out by God. Every word in Scripture is significant, and there's no exception here. I want you to focus on the word on with me. Came to them walking on the sea. Here's what Jesus did not do. Jesus did not walk along the water's shoreline, as many commentators try and say. As I was studying, preparing this week, I read a handful of self-proclaimed Bible scholars say, you know, from the disciples' perspective, it looked like Jesus was walking on the water, but we know he can't do that. And so really from the disciples' perspective, it was actually, he was was really walking along the shore. And my problem with that is that's not what the Bible says. In fact, in John chapter 6, the apostle John makes a point to say the disciples at this time were three or four miles away from the shore. He didn't walk along the shoreline. I also want you to notice that Jesus did not come in the storm as if the storm were carrying him to the disciples. What does the text say? Jesus came to them walking on the sea walking on the sea, demonstrating his power over nature. We read this, the disciples see this and say, only God. Only God walks on the storm which he brought to pass. Only God is this sovereign over nature. Only God. Jesus walks on the sea. And rightfully so, verse 26, the disciples were terrified. And they said, it is a ghost. The Sea of Galilee is situated kind of like a bowl. It's it's, it's a relatively small sea. It's more like, um, I guess, a big lake. Um, at At its biggest point, I think it's roughly 30 miles across. And it's situated with hills on one side, mountains on the other. And so you think about when the winds pick up, uh, the winds just swirl around this bowl and create insane storms. It's known for its violent storms. They appear suddenly, quickly, violently. And the disciples were fishermen. 
many of them were. This wasn't new to them. They understood violent storms. But not only that, uh, you remember Matthew chapter 8, where Jesus and the disciples are in the land of Gennesaret, and Jesus encounters two demon-oppressed men, and Jesus comes and he casts them out, and what do the, what do the demon-oppressed men say? They say, let us go into the pigs. And so the demon spirits, many of them, go into this herd of hundreds of pigs. And you know where these pigs went? They went and drowned in the Sea of Galilee, where the disciples were at in this moment. And so you know the disciples are having in the back of their head, the demon pigs are coming back to get us. It's not something you forget. And so there are at least dozens of corpses of demon pigs beneath them. And they say, I, I think I see a ghost. And they're like, yeah, I believe it. I do too. They're fearful. They're fearful. The winds are raging. The boat is being tossed. Darkness is around. Demon pigs beneath And so in this moment, what do you think the disciples need most? We say they need the storm to stop. They need the storm to be calmed. And look with me at verse 27. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Notice in this moment, Jesus does not act, he speaks. And in this moment, Jesus gives the disciples what they really need. The disciples are saying, I need resolution. Jesus, resolve this issue. Make the storm cease. Jesus doesn't give them that right away. What does he do? He gives them revelation. Take heart, what? It is I. Do not be afraid. New Testament's written in Greek, and uh, the phrase it is I is really significant. It's kind of a clunky translation into English, but in the Greek it literally reads, take heart, I am, do not be afraid. Take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. Jesus is announcing his eternal presence as God to his disciples in their greatest moment of need. Take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. In this moment, the disciples thought they needed the storm to stop. What they needed was a big God to come on the storm and say, take heart, it is I. Don't fear. And here's what you need to know. When life brings big storms, you need a big God. You need a God who comes to you on the storm. Not a God who walks along the shore. Not a God who comes to you in the storm. You need a God who is sovereign over the storm. And who says to you, take heart. I am. 
Do not be afraid. So Jesus prepares the disciples through trial. He sends them into the storm. Jesus reveals himself in the storm. He says, I am. Take heart. Don't be afraid. And the third and final major movement leading us to the confession of verse 33 is this. Jesus' salvation of his disciple Peter. Look with me at verses 28 through 31. And Peter answered him, storm still raging, by the way. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So Peter's going to be that guy. He's, he's going to say, you know, the self-revelation isn't enough. If it's really you, Jesus, command me to come with you on the water. And Jesus says in verse 29, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? So as Peter steps out of the boat, he is both a negative and a positive example of faith. He's both a negative and a positive example of faith. Negatively. Verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and he began to sink. He lacked faith in this moment. It's a negative example of faith. You know, it's often said when you take your eyes off of Jesus, you begin to sink. To which we say, amen. That's true. We can't look like Jesus if we're not looking at him cannot follow him if we have committed to letting him lead us. And Peter in this moment lacks faith, a negative example of faith. He takes his eyes off of Jesus and he begins to sink. But positively, look at what Peter prays in this moment. Lord, save me. Lord, save me. So yes, Peter took his eyes off Jesus, but positively, and I would say more importantly, he cried out to Christ as the only object of salvation. It'll be on the screen behind me, but I want to read to you a quote from uh, Charles Spurgeon. He was a pastor in the 1800s in Europe. And he preached a sermon called Peter's Shortest Prayer, and it was on the verse, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. And here's what Spurgeon observes. He says, Peter does not appear to have had any idea of saving himself from drowning. He does not seem to have thought that there was sufficient natural buoyancy about him to keep him afloat or that he could swim to the ship. But beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. One of the hardest tasks in the world is to get a man to give up all confidence in himself and from his heart to pray, Lord, 
save me. Lord, save me. I want to ask you this. Was it the amount of Peter's faith or Christ's grace that ultimately saved him that day? Surely wasn't Peter's faith because in this moment his faith was lacking. No, it was Christ's grace because like Jesus' salvation of Peter from the wind and the waves, so our salvation, our union with Christ is all of grace. I love verse 31. He took hold of him, reaching out his hand, saying, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Look, it's not the amount of your faith, but the object of your faith, which saves you. You come in here today and say, my faith is weak, my faith is fragile, my faith is frail. And we say, Peter's was too. But Jesus, not hesitantly, not apprehensively, but immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. The arm of the Lord, in a very real sense, was extended to Peter in this moment. Not because of Peter's great faith, but because of his humble prayer, Lord, save me. And just as Jesus' arm of salvation was not far from Peter in his moment of despair, so God's arm of salvation in Christ is not far from any of you today. You say, I don't have the right theology to pray as I need to pray to approach the throne of God. Peter said, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. Humble reliance on Christ alone. Lord, save me. And he did. And he continues to do so today. That's encouraging to me. Looking to myself, looking to others, looking to idols. There's no salvation in those things. There's salvation in Christ alone, and he's ready to save. So preparation sends him into the storm. Revelation says, take heart. It is I or I am. Do not be afraid. Salvation, Peter lacking faith. Christ had an abundance of grace to save in this moment. These three movements culminate in confession, in worship. I need you to hear this. Verse 23, Jesus' prayer life. That's really good, but that's not the main point of this narrative. Verse 25, Jesus walks on the water. That's really good. That's not the main point of this narrative. Peter's lacking, but ultimately, great faith. Great example of faith in verse 28. That's good for us to see. That's not the main point of this narrative. In fact, in verse 32, 
The winds calmed. The storm ceased. That's good. That's not the main point. Verse 33 is the main point. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. This is the point of the story. This is the end of all creation. This is the purpose for which we were created. Worship. Because worship is the only proper response to God's power. The disciples worshipped him saying, truly you're the son of God. So by way of conclusion, let me ask you this. As Jesus did with the twelve, has he prepared you? Has he positioned you through trial? I'm talking about looking back at your life, looking back at that cancer diagnosis, looking back at that divorce, looking back at that loss of a job, looking back at the prodigal son or daughter, where in the moment the winds and the waves are great, you're beginning to sink, you're wondering, God, why did you bring me here? Where are you? But only through the hindsight of faith can you see that Jesus brought you here to prepare you to worship him. Is that you today? Has he prepared you through trial? If so, worship him. Or as he did with the 12, has Jesus revealed himself to you as the great I am, as one who comes on the storm and says, take heart, it is I, you have no need to fear. If so, that's a gift of grace and we'd say worship him. Or as he did with Peter, has Jesus extended his arm of salvation to you? Has Jesus grabbed you from sinking in sin and despair? Has he shown in your heart and given you the mind to confess with the disciples that truly Jesus is the Son of God and worthy of my worship? If so, we would say, you've been saved by faith through grace, and this not your own doing. It's a gift of God. You can't boast about it. The only proper response to God's power is worship. And so would you conclude with me in prayer as we worship the God of our salvation? God, I love how your word says Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. The psalmist says salvation belongs to the Lord. We confess today that you are strong to save and you are the only one who can. God, in hindsight, we thank you that in your infinite wisdom, Christ sent his disciples into the storm. That in your mercy, you came on the storm, revealing yourself to the fearful, faithless disciples, 
saying, take heart, I am, do not be afraid. You saved Peter, not because of his great faith, but because of your infinite grace. And we confess with the disciples today, Jesus, you are the Son of God. You are strong to save. And so today, whether non-believer in this room, new believer here today, or mature believer, we all say that Jesus alone is sufficient to save. Scripture says, if anyone calls on the name of the Lord, he will be saved. The book of Isaiah says, look to me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. So we cry out today, Lord, save me, and we trust that you will be faithful to grant salvation to the humble servant today. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.